Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Mr. President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, Normally you can't do that. I all of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening, and there where I saw Jesus Christ. Mitt Romney um, doesn't have 
quite as long of a record. Now, I touched on some of these things yesterday. I want to touch on uh, the fact that that's why President Obama has got so much more coverage than Mitt Romney has. Today, we're going to take a in-depth look at Mormonism. Now, realize in the time period that we have together here, we're not going to be able to cover every single aspect of it. What I want to do is, is present a general view. And as we do this, keep in mind that Mitt Romney is a high priest, a bishop in the Mormon church. He's, he's very high up there. Um, he is privy to all of the secret handshakes, all of the secret passcodes. Um, he's privy to all of these things. He seems to be sidestepping all of these things that are uh, very important about the Mormon religion that most people don't realize. Um, reading Watchtower or listening to the missionaries that come to your front door, if you do that, if you don't slam the door in their face, uh, won't tell you a lot of these things. We're going to cover a, a bunch of these things today. So here's the agenda. We're going to start with um, the daughter of a Mormon, uh, Mormon bishop. Um, she had left the church. Um, she's going to tell some of the secrets. Um, I'm going to read some of them, and um, also I have a nice sound clip from her. Uh, we're going to look at the Mormon temple and the rituals that go on in the Mormon temple, the things that accompany that. We're going to look at this training center for new missionaries, um, what they go through. Uh, it, it will help explain some of the rituals, because that's really where they start. Uh, we're going to look at the Masonic roots of Mormonism. And then at the end of the program, we're going to sum it up and turn this into a bunch of questions. And these will be, of course, uh, questions that you don't have to you know, call in and answer. Um, but these will be questions that you can raise in your own head and decide for yourself if Mormonism is Christian or if it's a cult. Uh, this will be something for you to decide for yourself. Before we get started, I have some absolutely incredibly good news from Iran. Can you believe that? We have good news from Iran. I know. I was just as surprised as you are. Well, you know, we've been covering... Pastor Youssef uh, Nadakani over probably the last six months or so. This is the Christian pastor. Pastor, when, Remember when we were talking about President Obama and how his Muslim roots uh, come from his birth from Muslim parents. Well, it turns out that Iranian pastor Youssef Narakani, who was originally sentenced to death in his native country for his Christian faith, which is Iran, was acquitted of apostasy, apostasy charges and released from custody. Narakani, 32, was in prison for three years waiting execution for refusing to renounce his Christian faith. His charges were lowered to evangelizing to Muslims, which carried a three-year sentence. He was released with time served. Now, according to the uh, American Center for Law and Justice, a Washington-based watchdog group that's been um, campaigning for his release, said, Today our sources in Iran reported that Pastor Youssef was acquitted of apostasy and released from prison. After languishing in prison for almost three years, he's been reunited with his family. Uh, Jordan Seculo... Executive Director 
of the uh, ACLJ said in a statement to FoxNews.com, while we're working on uh, confirming the exact details of his release, some sources report that the court alternatively convicted Pastor Youssef of evangelizing to Muslims, sentencing him to this three years and granted him time served. The story is an example of how the world can join together and ensure that justice is served and freedom is preserved. Now, Narakani was originally called to uh, this last Saturday's hearing to answer charges brought against him, leading to the speculation that the new charges from the Iranian Supreme Court could be for a security-based crime, a charge often handed down to cover up prisoners being held in sentence on faith-based charges. While we praise the release of Pastor Youssef, we must recognize that Iran felt obligated to save faith among its people and continue its pattern of suppressing religious freedom with intimidation tactics. International attention to this matter uh, saved this man's life. But we can't forget that the human right of freedom of religion includes the right of freedom of expression. His attorney said, who has also been jailed, maintained that the married father of two faced execution because he refused to renounce his religion. Iranian diplomats told a United Nations panel earlier this year that Narakani would not be executed. So what do we have to say about uh, this good news? prayers that through international pressure has got this man released, who says that we cannot influence the world? You know, good things can happen when we join together in Christ and make these things happen. My friends, this is excellent news. He has been released. Now, as long as nothing happens to him, there's no secret assassination or anything like that, then we will consider him free. Free! That's a very good thing. All right. To play a commercial or two, we're going to come back and we're going to hear from the... Uh, Mormon Bishop's daughter um, who's going to spill some secrets. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You can now hear our program on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and more. It's on demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.
had a bad experience in the Mormon church. So let's take this with a grain of salt. Although she's telling the truth, she has a bit of an attitude about it. Because she asked the question, would you trust the judgment of a man if he truly believes he's going to be God? 
And that's what Mormons believe, that they will be gods. The daughter of a Mormon bishop, who's abandoned her family's faith, claims in a new book the election of Mitt Romney to the presidency would put the U.S. in danger due to what she calls the Republicans' outrageous, horrific, and mind-controlling beliefs. Now, while he attempts to portray Mormonism as another Christian religion, Mitt Romney counts on his skills to shift our attention away from what he truly believes. If the American people knew what he truly believed, they surely would not place him in any high office in anywhere in this land. Although, as we're going to discover later in the program, there is a lot of Mormons already in the uh, government at all levels. So, here's the deal. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the official name for Mormonism, has rocketed into the national consciousness this month since Reverend Robert Jeffress, a Rick Perry supporter who pastors the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, said Romney was not a Christian and that Mormonism is a cult. Now, my opinion, I agree with that, and you may by the end of this program. You may not. Part of uh, a pastor's job is to warn his people and others about false religions. Uh, you know, I do this all of the time. I warn you about these false religions and replacement theologies. You know, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, these are all false religions. Now, I have a clip from her that that I'm going to play here in a minute. <clears throat> but first... Here's some of the basic things. Mormons believe they will become a god in the afterlife and be given their own planet to be god of, their own planet and their own population, that they will mimic Jesus the same as Jesus is god of this planet, not of the universe, but of this planet. They say also they will be gods of their own planet. They believe that Satan... And Jesus are brothers, literal brothers. They say Jesus was not born of a virgin. That he will be given his own afterlife kingdom where, where he'll have sexual relations with his wife and to populate the kingdom with spirit children as God the Father himself has a wife on his own planet. And we'll get into that too. Mormonism teaches... We pre-exist on God the Father's planet as spirit children before we're planted in our mother's wombs. The reason why we're here, according to Mormonism, is that we can work out our progression to godhood and our own planets for ourselves. That we don't need God to do that. We do that ourselves. Now, this woman that you're going to hear from was married in a Mormon temple at age 19, but now considers herself non-denominational Christian, says there's a secret agenda Mormon officials don't like to talk about publicly. A complete takeover of the government, she says. They have more people in the CIA and the FBI. They have an employment office for Mormons in Washington, D.C. to be able to infiltrate all of these Mormons into the government. 
They've been trying since the beginning to get someone in the presidency because they believe they have established their authority. So when Jesus comes to earth, the Mormon church will take control of the government and the Mormons will be the uh, government of God on earth. Erickson says that, that her main concern is that the leaders of the free world have the ability to, to discern facts from fiction. You know, it may be crucial to our survival, she says. If his beliefs are distorted, which they unequivocally are, why would it not be crucial to our existence to protect our country from being placed in the hands of this kind of person who thinks he's going to be a god? And that he's going to populate his new planet with spiritual children through him and his wife or wives. Now, I want to play this clip. And then we'll come back after this clip. Listen to this, please. This is the daughter of this bishop in the Mormon church. Tricia Erickson is with us. She is the author of a new book, Can Mitt Romney Serve Two Masters? The Mormon Church versus the Office of the Presidency of the United States of America. Uh, her website, angelpicturesandpublicity.com. She's also a, a damage control and crisis management specialist and political consultant. Uh, Tricia, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. You are a... Uh, is reformed the right word or lapsed Mormon? Um, I guess you call it a former Mormon. Okay. I was raised in a, uh, my father was the bishop of the Mormon church, mm -hmm. and I was raised in a Mormon family. And um, I grew up in Mormondom, all aspects of it. Uh -huh. And, you know, I kept waiting for somebody to bring this out, especially in the last 2008 election. I did write an article on it and did a few interviews in 2008. But, um, you know, it's, it's like our eyes are glazed over when it comes to this religious situation with Mitt Romney. This is not a Kennedy Catholic moment where people were afraid the Pope was going to run the church. It's not that at all. This is far deeper. It is, it, it, if you just knew what Mitt Romney believed, you would run far away from this candidate. Well, rather than speaking in generalities, let's talk about the specifics. What are the things that Mitt Romney believes, or John Huntsman for that matter, um, that we should give pause to Americans, setting aside those Americans who who uh, believe in a particular religious doctrine that it may conflict with. I mean, you can address that certainly. You know, things like that Jesus wasn't born as a vir from a virgin birth. Right. Uh, the Mormons don't believe that, uh, which might offend Christians. But for people who aren't Christians, so what? But what are the parts of Mormonism that all of us, you know, that that in a secular republic we should be freaked out about? Okay, let me give you issue number one. Merritt Romley truly, unequivocally believes that when he dies, he is going to become a god in heaven, that he is going to be given his own kingdom slash planet. He will be able to call his wife Anne in by her secret name that is only given to him in the Mormon secret temple ceremonies, which only he knows. And the reason for that is that if she's not a good enough wife, you know, he may not call her by her name, and it puts him in charge of her Mormondom salvation. Um, so when he and Anne, if he calls her in, he will procreate with her as God did because they believe that God had a wife in heaven of which they procreate 
spirit babies all the time. So all of us here that are on earth, we existed in a pre-existence with God as a spirit baby. Then we came down and inhabited these little babies' bodies that are here on the earth, all of us, all of our children, uh, so that we could go through our uh, process to venture into uh, godhood. The progression is what you call it, of godhood, uh, so that you can have your own planets yet again. Wow. Uh, and this is that's true. that's this is pretty bizarre, but how might that affect public policy? All right. Well, why, should, why should we care about that if he's president of the United States? So what if he's got a wacky religious belief? Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's like I Jefferson said, really... I don't care if you know a man has one god or ten gods as long as he you know, it doesn't pick my pocket. Uh, well, I kind of believe you know that he should be completely sane um, and he should have discernment and good judgment. I mean, if the man truly believes he's going to become a god, I mean, would you trust the judgment of somebody like that? Well, and I if mean, Jack it, Kennedy truly believed that, that truly believed that the Eucharist wafer, that the communion wafer, was magically transmuted into the literal body of Jesus Christ when he took that, and he may well have believed that. If he was a good Catholic, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, who am I to say what somebody else's belief is or isn't, or how wackadoodle it is? Well, I mean, you know, point, it seems a little odd to me. I wasn't raised Catholic, but um, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't see how that influences influence Jack Kennedy's ability to be a good president. And I haven't yet heard anything that would cause me to think that Mitt Romney might not be a good president, even though I, you know, I'm horrified by the idea of him being a president. Yeah, I'm more well, concerned about his business background. I frankly. want a president that's not indoctrinated to think that he he's going to become a real god and have his own planet, number one. But there's more than that. But mm-hmm. we'll just leave it there. But let me just tell you, let me lead you through this. You, you've got to understand that Mitt is not a casual Mormon. He was a Mormon missionary. Then he went to missionary zone leader. Which Then he was assistant to the mission president. He's very indoctrinated. He was bishop. And then he became stake president over about 12 wards. And then he and he was also a graduate of uh, Brigham Young University, so he's totally, unequivocally uh, uh, indoctrinated. He has been through the secret temple ceremonies in which they have to swear to in these ceremonies, and they're very violent, the ones that I went through. Uh, we had to make uh, signs of slashing our throats, slashing our guts, and get into that later if you want. And, and we just have one minute left. Okay, it's all yours. But he has, to cons- he has sworn to the law of consecration to consecrate him- yourself, your time, your talents, and everything from which the Lord has blessed you or with which he may bless you to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for building up the kingdom of the kingdom of God and earth on, for the establishment of Zion. Um, he, there is no way that he will be able to not listen to the prophet. His eternal al- salvation depends on it. He so if he do, becomes he president, he has... first over country. That's what I was just going to say. He has pre-sworn that church has to come over country. Absolutely, unequivocally. Now, that's something that, to the best of my knowledge, Jack Kennedy never had to swear. To. Well, it's not a demand that the Catholic Church makes, to the best of my knowledge. Well, if we have more time, he swore more, to more than that. That's just all I can get in with this short segment. Yeah, with, with the, and, and it, is, it is a short segment, but uh, I thank you for what you're doing. Tricia Erickson, the book is called Can Mitt Romney, can Mitt Romney serve, serve Two Masters? The Mormon Church versus the Office of the Presidency of the United States. And uh, angelpicturesandpublicity.com, the website that you can, I'm, I'm assuming, find the book in the normal sources. Yeah, just go to Amazon.com. You've got a better price there. They sell it to you cheaper. Okay. Trisha Erickson, thanks a lot for being with us, Trisha. All right. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. 27 minutes past the hour. All right, my friends. We have heard the basics here. We have heard that 
he is a very prominent Mormon. He's not just a regular casual Mormon. Um, he has worked his way up through the mission, um, up to assistant to the president, to being in charge of his ward, to being a, uh, a stake president who is in charge of – Mitt Romney is in charge of over 12 wards, and a ward is a congregation. So he's very high up there. He um, is very influential. And he has to be very, very dedicated to his religion and everything that's contained in it for him to get to that point. Otherwise, he would have never made it that far. Now, we're going to go through some of the things that you have to go through to even reach half of where Mitt Romney is. So stick with me here on this. We're going to talk about things that happen in the temple. Uh, the, the Mormon temple is the very heart of the system of Mormonism. It's here that certain worthy, quote-unquote, Mormons perform secret ordinances that they believe will allow them to obtain the status of God in the hereafter. There are secret rituals that are also done in behalf of the dead. No worship services are held in this building, and non-Mormons are restricted from entering except for a brief period uh, previous to its dedication. Once it's dedicated, only Mormons can enter into the temple. The temple is not a place where they have services now. Remember that. Now, strange as it may seem, only about 20% of the Mormon population have been through the temple ceremony, and fewer than that attend regularly. Because the Mormon church considers the temple ceremony as sacred, they've never published a dialogue of the temple rituals or filmed the ceremonies for the benefit of the public or even their own people. The devout LDS will, will almost never talk about the secret activity that goes on behind temple doors. However, there are numerous eyewitness accounts that temple Mormons who become alienated from the church, have been exposed um, to all that goes on in the ceremony. Dozens of these accounts have been published over the years. One such testimony comes from a more, uh, former temple veil worker who has performed over 1,000 temple ordinances. As recent as 1990, actual recordings have been made of this temple ceremony. Now, I talked about this a little bit yesterday about the uh, the veil ceremony, where you have to reach a certain level in order to uh, participate in this veil ceremony. Somebody comes out from a higher up, comes out from um, behind the veil, and has to invite you through the veil in order for you to come through this veil and reach, um, obtain a higher level in the Mormon temple. <clears throat> it's a, it's a, my opinion, a, a symbolic ritual. But they don't see it that way. Instead, well, I think we can accurately determine that this, the secret activities that are, put, are are performed in this LDS temple. Now, remember, the temple is not where they have worship services. There are no worship services in the temple. The temple is for these secret rituals and activities only. You know, and our Bible tells us to prove all things. To hold fast that which is good in First Thessalonians. 
well, the late Mormon apostle Bruce uh, McConkie gave this information about the temple ordinances. He says, certain gospel ordinances are of such a sacred and holy nature that the Lord authorizes their performance only in holy sanctuaries prepared and dedicated for that purpose. They are given in modern times to Prophet Joseph Smith by revelation. That's Mormon doctrine from uh, 1979 on page 779 of the Book of Mormon. Now, even though Mormons believe that God is the source of these so-called sacred and holy ordinances, the evidence that we're going to look at today, or look at today shows the Mormon ter temple ceremony is far from holy and biblical, and certainly not from God. Yeah, and, and we're going to—that's my opinion. This is not of God. None of this stuff that we're going to cover, and I've—I've I've prepared carefully for this. I'm going to try not to be biased because, in my opinion, this has nothing to do with the true God. When I did this program about the racism in the Mormon church, well, go back and listen to it. I, this, this, is not, this is not of God. Because, you know, for almost 150 years, this temple endowment ceremony, that's what it's called, an endowment ceremony included three specific oaths, which Mormons believe, couldn't be tampered with or altered regardless of the criticism that they had received. Adjustment, adjustments had been uh, quietly made over the years in an attempt to make these oaths appear less violent and gruesome. However, in 1990, the first president, along with the Quorum of Twelve Apostles of the Mormon Church, determined that now God wanted some of the most sacred elements completely omitted. So you see, the Quorum of Twelve Apostles are the Twelve Apostles of the Mormon Church who are alive today, who are still getting revelations from God today. And we're going to go through that a little later when we talk about polygamy and when we talk about uh, um, some of its Masonic roots a little bit later. Um, so remember that part because we're going to be coming back to that. <clears throat> now, it, here's what they say. You know, the following uh, that I'm going to tell you comes from oaths that were taken of um, Aaronic priesthood and was printed in 1931. It says, we and each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets of this, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, when its accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our throats be cut from ear to ear and our, our tongues torn out by their roots. This is from Temple Mormonism, page 18. Let me read this again. Page 18 of Temple Mormonism. We, and each of us, covenant and promise, we will not reveal any of the secrets of this, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood. With the accompanying name, sign, or penalty, should we do so, we agree that our throats be cut from ear and our tongues torn out by the roots. <laughs> now, you know, the words of this oath, is, that was 1931, the words of this oath have been changed. 
It now says, I, LDS covenant, that I would never reveal the first token of the Aaronic priesthood when it's accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Rather, to do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. So they changed it from your throat cut ear to ear and your tongue torn out by the roots to I would suffer my life to be taken. And it's interesting to to note that the, the wording has been softened. The temple ceremony would still demonstrate these instructions prior to taking on the oath, which must be followed by each temple patron. The execution of the penalty is represented by placing the thumb under the left ear, the palm of the hand down, and by drawing the thumb quickly across the throat to the right ear and drop the hand to the side. This oath was as the representation of the penalty was completely removed April 10th of 1990. The second oath is considered the second token of the Aaronic priesthood and was also printed in 1931. Here's what it says from 1931. We and each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal the secrets of this, the second token of the Aaronic priesthood. With its accompanying name, sign, grip, or penalty, should we do so, we agree to have our breasts cut open and our hearts and vitals torn from our bodies and given to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This is the oath from 1931 for the second token of the Aaronic priesthood that they had to recite and swear to, and this comes from Temple Mormonism, page 20, printed 1931. Now, the wording of this promise has also changed for modern Mormons, and it has been changed to this. I, your name, covenant that I will never reveal the second token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty. Rather to do so, I would suffer all patrons pause and bring your right hand to your left breast, my life, and the patrons draw their hand across the chest to the right breast to be taken. Then they drop their hands to the side. So they're not saying it, but they're symbolizing it with their hands across their chest. Now, again, this oath, as well as the gruesome gesture, was removed April 10, 1990. Now, this third oath is considered the first token of the Melchizedek priesthood and was recited in those words by early temple Mormons. Here are the words. We and each of us do covenant and promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets of this first token of the Melchizedek priesthood when its accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our bodies be cut asunder in the midst of all of our bowels gush out. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> There's no messing around there. Oh, man, that is ho, ho, ho. Let me read that again. No wonder they say these oaths are gruesome. Now, this is the original wording. And let me, <laughs> let me do this again. We and each of us do covenant and promise that we will not reveal <coughs> any of the secrets of this, the of Melchizedek priesthood when it's accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our bodies be cut asunder in the midst and all of our bowels gush out. Temple Mormonism, page 
20 exact wording. But again, they've changed these words to this. This is the, the new Melchizedek priesthood oath. I covenant in the name of the Son that I will never reveal the first token of the Melchizedek priesthood or sign of the nail and its accompanying name, sign, and penalty. Rather to do so, I would suffer my life. And here's where the patrons all draw their right thumb quickly across their body. And they say, I would rather suffer my life to be taken. Hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> why did they change it? If this is the word of God, why did they change it? You know, this this severe penalty, along with the gesture, was, was ordered removed by the first president of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles in 1990. Even though the graphic penalties have been removed, all Mormons today still learn the same secret names, signs, and passwords with a solemn covenant never to reveal them to anyone except the Lord when they are tested in heaven. Now, I want to I want to go back here to what it's been changed to because there is there's a couple words in here that just spark something. Now let me read this again. This is the revised version of your bowels gushing out. I believe in the name of the Son that I will never reveal the first token of Melchizedek priesthood or sign of the nail or sign of the nail. Now this is the sign of the nail is what brought, is what clicked with me just as, as I read this. They have secret handshakes. And you know who is, before these handshakes were revealed, that they were top secret. I mean, top secret. Well, they have handshakes that uh, reveal what is called the secret of the nail. So this handshake, when they grab each other's hands, um, there's there's two different handshakes for two different levels of this secret nail handshake, and it's to signify the nails in the wrist for the crucifixion. So it, one looks like just uh, and I didn't have time to post them on the website or on the blog talk uh, um, homepage, but it's it looks like a regular handshake, except <laughs> excuse me, one finger um, is extended and points to just above the wrist bone of where the nail would be. That was one. And the other one was um, uh, kind of a kind of a weak man handshake where the, where the one man would hold his hand out and the other would kind of cup his hand into the other one. Now you'd have to see it. But two different handshakes depicting this nail. So that's what they're talking about there. I covenant in the name of the Son that I will never reveal the first token of Melchizedek priesthood or the sign of the nail when it's accompanying name, sign, and penalty. Rather to do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. And that's when they draw their thumb quickly across their body to show their body being cut open and their bowels gushing out. Hmm, it's quite a penalty, isn't it? Well, even though this graphic penalty has been removed, all Mormons today still learn the same secret names, the signs, the passwords, with a solemn covenant 
never to reveal them to anyone except the Lord when they're tested in heaven. Now, this whole means a gaining of entrance into the presence of God by a secret password or handshake or a sign that's totally foreign to the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk anything about passwords or secret handshakes with the grand poobah or, you know, any of this kind of thing. Rather than having to pass or heavenly test um, of secret combinations, the Lord, in all his wisdom and power, simply gives us his absolute promise that he is the Son of God and he hath life, and that, that hath not the Son, hath not life. And it says in John that these things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. John 5, 12, and 13. So, you know, all of, and, and they're claiming that, that the signs and the handshakes and, and the solemn oaths and all of that are critical to your salvation and part of you working your salvation out for yourself. You know, and the Catholics also say that, that your salvation is by works. And they use that same thing where it says that the Bible tells you to work out your salvation. That means through your works. They're, they're believing that, the, and they contradict themselves, say, yeah, it's by faith and grace, but, but it's by works. Well, th those two things don't go together. You know, another radical oath, which was in the temple ceremony for over 80 years, was, was potentially dangerous and completely removed in 1927. Now, just after the turn of the century, Mormon leaders were questioned in, in court about, um, at great length, actually, about the oath of the United States government. You know, this investigation, they had an investigation that produced eyewitness accounts which verified that the oath of vengeance against the United States was an obligation received by Temple Mormons. And I have the words that they used here. Here's what it said. You and each of you do covenant and promise that you will pray and never cease to pray, Almighty God, to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation. Because remember, Mormonism is based in America. They believe Jackson County, Missouri is going to be where Jesus rules and reigns from. And we'll get into that a little later. You and each, I'm going to start this over. You and each of you do covenant and promise that you will pray and never cease to pray, Almighty God, to avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation. That you will teach the same to your children and to your children's children under the third and fourth generations. Hmm. So they're talking about America because they believe Jesus came here after he was resur resurrected um, on the third day. That he came to America to set up his kingdom here in Jackson County, Missouri. Uh, in fact, before we go on here... Uh, let me uh, let me play you the clip about Jackson County. And tomorrow, presidential candidate Mitt Romney will deliver a big speech on his faith. Romney is a Mormon. And as KMBC 9's Michael Mahoney reports, Mormonism believes Jackson County, Missouri, is one of the most sacred places on earth. Michael. That's right, Larry. According to the Mormon faith, Jackson County is the site of the Garden of Eden. And after Adam and Eve's fall, they fled to what is now Davies County, Missouri, and that's where they started civilization. Davies County is about an hour north of Kansas City. And the second coming of Christ will take place in an area just to the west of downtown Independence. 
All of that was revealed to Joseph Smith in the 1820s. He started the church. And he came to Independence in 1831, believing Jackson County was the site for the Garden of Eden. We feel this is the area in which the, uh, mankind begins. Adam and Eve were in this area here. The official name is the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. They have a visitor center in Independence, not far from the area where the church believes Jesus will return to earth. Before the second coming of the Son of God, he will come and we will build another temple here for in his behalf. And this is where he will rule and reign for the thousand years we call the millennium. Mormonism is the fourth largest religion in America. It has more than 13 million members around the world. The Book of Mormon is described by the church as another testament of Jesus Christ. They say it's a record of God's dealings with the ancient inhabitants of America and that Christ visited the Americas, probably Central America, in the days after his crucifixion. Now, in the 1840s, Smith was murdered and the church was chased out of the Midwest and settled in Utah. They fled because some of their neighbors feared their religion, and others on the frontier feared their large and tight-knit communities. Thousands of people moving together in one area and beginning to take control of political and economic processes. And if you're not one of them, that becomes a threat. Now, a couple of months ago, a reporter asked Romney specifically if he believed that Christ came to America and that he will return to Jackson County. Romney says he accepts the doctrines of this church and he tries to live up to them. He will give his speech called Faith in America tomorrow in Texas. Larry? Okay, so the Mormon church began in the early 1800s right here in America. And everything when it talks about these things um, is talking about America. So when he says... Um, pray uh, and never cease to pray, Almighty God, to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation. He's talking about America, that you will teach the same of your children and your children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, the, the conclusion of the this U.S. Senate committee was the obligation is, and here's what they said, the obligation uh, here and before set forth is an oath of disloyalty to the government, which the uh, rulers of the Mormon Church require, or at least encourage, every member of the organization to take the fact that the first um, presidency was, and 12 apostles retain uh, an obligation of that nature in the ceremonies of the church, show that at heart they are hostile to this nation and disloyal to this government. And, and this is the conclusion right out of this court case. Because even before Joseph Smith's death, the idea of vengeance was encouraged by Joseph Smith himself. Now, the history of the church uh, gives this statement that's attributed to Joseph Smith. Here's what they said. I told Stephen uh, Markham that if I had Hiram, that if I and Hiram were ever taken again and we should be massacred, or I was not a prophet of God, I want Hiram to live to avenge my blood, but he is determined not to leave me. So vengeance is part of their doctrine, and it's also part of their attitude. Now, we see it in this U.S. Senate committee where they bring it up as part of doctrine, and we see it right here from Joseph Smith himself that it is also his attitude that comes from his doctrine, the doctrine facilitates the attitude and the attitude is revenge does our christian faith talk about 
revenge. The oath of revenge was such a violent nature that some early Mormons understood it to mean that they were to personally avenge the blood of Joseph and the Hiram under certain circumstances. You know, under the, the date of December 6th, 1889, Apostle Abraham Cannon recorded this in his diary. He said, Father said that he understood when he had this endowments in Navarro that he took an oath against the murderers of the prophets of Joseph as well as other prophets. And he, if he had ever met any of those who had taken a hand in the massacre, he would undoubtedly have attempted to avenge the blood of the martyrs. Vengeance is part of their doctrine. Through an attempt to avenge the blood of the martyrs. Well, is that what we're taught? No, this sounds more along the lines of Islam. He said his father said that he understood that we he had the endowments, his endowments, and the endowments are these temple ceremonies. And, you know, in 1927, after years of criticism, the first president of the Mormon Church finally ordered the complete removal of this oath because people weren't liking it. You can't blame them. You know, no wonder people were afraid of the things that they were saying and running them out of town. Not only do Mormon, Mormons believe that secret rituals are necessary for their own salvation, but they believe that certain ordinances, such as baptism and marriage, must be performed in behalf of the dead. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, made this unbelievable declaration in a sermon given in 1844. Now, before, before I... Read his sermon of what he said in this sermon. What, is our, what does real Christianity say about the dead? It says we are not to pray for the dead. The Bible says that Christians are not to pray for the dead. And the reason is their fate is already set in stone. According to Christianity, once you leave this life and enter into the afterlife, your destiny is set in stone. You're either in or out. There is no in-between. That you are not to pray for the dead. Well, not so in Mormonism. <clears throat> he made this sermon in 1844. Here's what it says, and I quote, The greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. This is the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith, page 356. Joseph Felding Smith, who has become the 10th prophet of the LDS church said this about the greatest commandment this the greatest commandment he said the greatest commandment given to us and made obligatory is the temple work in our own behalf and in behalf of the dead they're doing these things for the dead now we're in the bible we're told to perform any rituals where in the bible are we told to perform any rituals in behalf of the dead or that we that any work done for the dead um, or any dead person will somehow help him in the afterlife in fact contrary to what joseph smith has said 
You know, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely thus, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thy friend, as thyself. Thou is none other commandment greater than these. That's from Mark chapter 12. Yet they teach something completely different in Mormonism. And they say that these are commandments of God and that the Book of Mormon that teaches this is a companion doctor, doctrine to the Bible. Yet it contradicts what the Bible says. Now, if they're going to claim to be Christian and, and teach from both the Bible and the Book of Mormon as companion documents, then how do they rectify that uh, contradiction between each other? Well, don't bother asking them. They'll just get mad. They won't do it. There is nowhere in the Bible where we are told to perform any rituals in behalf of the dead. There is nothing that we could do to help people who have already passed. Now, you know, because of this close association that the Temple Mormons have with the dead, a lot of people claim to actually have contact with the dead. Mormon President Wilford uh, Woodruff delivered a disclosure in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City where, where he said this shocking announcement. Here's what he said. Two weeks before I left St. George, the spirit of the dead gathered around me, wanting to know if we did not redeem them. These were the signers of the Declaration of Independence. They waited on me for two days and two nights. I straight away went into the baptismal uh, font and called upon Brother McAllister to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Fifty other eminent men, making 100 in all, including John Wesley, Columbus, and others, I then baptized him for every president of the United States except three. And when their uh, cause is just, someone will do the work for them. Hmm. You tell me, is this Christian? You know, the, the, the man-made idea of attempting to redeem the dead is, is certainly out of harmony with the Word of God, with the Bible. Psalms 49 clearly says none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor Give to God a ransom for him. The Bible makes clear that there is no second chance after death. It says in Hebrews, And as it was appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Oh, my goodness. All right, we're going to talk about, you know, <clears throat> I told you in yesterday's program that I had stumbled into... Um, a bookstore that ended up being a Deseret bookstore, which is an LDS Mormon bookstore, where um, as I was wandering around this store, uh, just looking at what was um, on the shelves, I noticed another part of the store behind some swinging glass doors that was a garment store. And these were, um, like I explained yesterday, all white clothing. There wasn't anything in there, any other color besides white. These are ceremonial clothes that have to be worn during these rituals and ceremonies. And it has to come from an LDS store. Hmm, imagine that, forcing them to buy their the LDS products, which are finely packaged. 
in clear plastic with a picture of the uh, Mormon tabernacle in Utah in the front of it. Well, part of the uh, – we're going to talk about – because it, only because this is such a hot-button issue when it comes to these ceremonial clothing. Some of these, this clothing, you know, is pretty mundane. They say you have to wear special booties, you know, and I've seen these special booties in the store. You know, they kind of look like hospital booties or something you would put on over your shoe, you know, or something like that. Pure white, everything pure white. But there's this hot button issue about this magic underwear. Now, I'm calling it magic underwear, and I shouldn't do that. This is ceremonial protective undergarments, okay, sacred protective undergarments. Now, I'm going to take a short break here. When I come back, we're going to talk about some of these sacred garments and the sacred undergarments that they use for protection and for fertility. Um, and we're going to do that as soon as I come back from this break, which will just be a minute. Whatever you do, my friends, don't go away. You don't want to miss this. For you, the listeners of the W. Dean Shook Program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Get your first 30 days of the Audible Listener Gold Membership Plan free. It includes one credit, which in most cases, one credit equals one audiobook. Now, after your 30-day free trial, your membership will automatically renew each month for just $14.95. With your membership, you will receive one credit per month, plus members-only discounts on all audio purchases. Members also receive one audiobook per month. Membership saves up to 30% on additional purchases. Save up to 75% on all CD audio retail prices, plus a free daily audio subscription to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Now with over 100,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with your iPod, iPhone, Android, Kindle, BlackBerry, and over 500 MP3 devices. Get your free trial today at audiotrial.com slash shook. That's audibletrial.com slash shook. God Stitcher? Well, we're on it, so go get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Download it free at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Give me a break. 
Thank you so much, my friends, for waiting through that brief commercial. All right. We're going to talk about these sacred garments. Are you ready for this? Now, pay attention to the first part that I'm going to talk about here because yesterday I spoke a little bit about um, the temple ritual of uh, washing and anointing. This is done by a group of people to the naked body. So the people who go through this ceremony has to stand there naked while other people wash them and anoint them. This is part of the ceremony. So this is listen for this during uh, uh, when we talk about this sacred underwear because this is also going to be important uh, because you know among these many unchristian aspects of this temple ritual is the obligation to wear secret sacred temple garments with mystical markings. Now this garment is supposed to be worn next to the skin for life. And it's only to be removed for changing or for bathing or for certain public appearances. Uh, we've heard some interviews recently from uh, – well, some of us have. It doesn't hit mainstream. Football players in the National Football League who say that they don't wear it uh, while they play football. Well, these are supposed to be worn for life all of the time, only taken off to change them or to bathe. Other than that, you're supposed to be wearing these things. Now, this underwear is placed on the temple patron by a temple worker after he or she has gone through a ceremonial washing of various parts of the body. So let me say this again. Now, go ahead and get the picture of this. This underwear is to be placed upon the temple patron by a temple worker after he or she has gone through a ceremonial washing of various parts of the body. He's told that this garment will be a shield and protection against the power of the destroyer. Now, while the original temple garment came down to the wrist and ankles and it wasn't supposed to be altered, the modern temple garments have been abbreviated. Mormon leaders now place more emphasis on the importance of the markings rather than the garment itself. So here's another thing that has changed over the years. So apparently Mormons have a religion that the oaths and the ceremonies and the importance of the sacredness of these things change over years. Now the mystical powers that these secret markings are believed to possess can be demonstrated by a letter that was sent from the first president of the Mormon church um, and president of stakes and bishops and wards, in, and here's what they said. Now, remember, this came from uh, presidents of stakes. Now, a stake is a group of churches. Remember, Mitt Romney is a stake president over uh, 12 wards. So here's what they they said. Said we're... Uh, military regulations require the wearing of two-piece underwear, such as underwear should be properly marked as if the articles were of normal pattern. If circumstances are such that different under, underwear may be turned back to the wearer from that which he sent to the laundry, then the marks should be placed on a small piece of cloth and sewn upon the underwear while being worn then removed when the underwear is sent out to the laundry and re-sewn 
re-sewn upon the underwear when they returned. This is from 1964. Now it makes it makes people it makes me wonder how people can get so committed to following their leaders that, that they would disregard their own ability to reason as well as shrug off guidance from the word of God. The Bible in Proverbs 3 tells us where we should put our trust. Not in underwear. It says trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. He doesn't say wear underwear for guidance or protection. Temple Mormons are taught that special undergarments will be a shield and protection to them. Well, what does it say in Proverbs? It says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Not underwear. Which comes from the companion, according to Mormons, the companion of the Bible. Well, you know, they have other issues, too. You know, since the days of Joseph Smith and the temple ceremony was... Uh, it contained a reference uh, that said the lone and dreary uh, world, which portrayed preachers as being employed by the devil. Here's what they said. Luf Lucifer, do you pre preach the orthodox religion? Preacher says, yes, that's what I preach. Lucifer says, if you will pre preach your orthodox religion to these people and convert them, I will pay you well. Preacher said, I'll do my best. This is what they're saying, that everyone who preaches anything besides Mormonism is, is being taught by Satan himself. That what we learn, what we know, uh, or what Christianity teaches is of Lucifer, not of God, and they're doing it for pay. <clears throat> they're doing it for pay. Well, they put this in here to mock regular preachers. And and they use the mocking of Orthodox doctrine uh, for criticism against uh, the Mormon church. Anybody who criticizes the church, they're saying, is of the devil. Look, besides these serious problems, the inconsistency of these Mormon letters and ceremonies and um prove that they're totally unable to reveal God's will and, and it just shows that Mormonism is simply a man-made religion changing whenever and wherever it, it finds it necessary to accommodate the world when people start complaining about it they change it you know what did Jesus say when he was questioned about his doctrine he said in John 18 I speak openly to the world I ever taught in the synagogues and in the temple, whether the Jews, where the Jews always resort, and in secret I have said nothing. And that's what he said in John 18. What does it say in John 3:16? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever uh, believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Which contradicts Mormonism. You know, and there's there's much more that contradicts in in ways that are 
absolutely incredible. You know, what about what about polygamy? Now, polygamy is taught in Mormonism. In fact, I want to play you a clip about some polygamists um, and how this whole thing works with the several wives and how they get along. What's you know? Let, let me play this clip for you. If you thought you knew what polygamy in America looks like, child brides, prairie dresses, and upswept hair, look again. I try to work out about three to four times a week. Meet Vicki. I'm the second wife. And Valerie. Woo! I'm the third wife. What a workout. Twin sisters who, along with another woman, Henry's father took lots of consider themselves married to the same man. Altogether, we have 22 children. Don't throw it away. And we all live in one big house. It's not a house in a remote compound, but on a middle-class suburban street just outside Salt Lake. How many families like yours are out there? Thousands. Thousands. Thousands of families you would never know were breaking the law just by looking at them. These women have jobs, wear makeup, and send their children to the local public school. They do sports, soccer, baseball, lacrosse, football. Their children play video games like the very popular Guitar Hero. Their teenage son dyes his hair. We're willing to not think that the outside world is such a bad place. My family doesn't live in any kind of a closed society. It's estimated there's close to 40,000 polygamists in the United States, and only a quarter of them belong to the FLDS. Many more live much like Vicki and Valerie. A documentary crew from the network We was invited inside their home. There is, of course, the chaos of feeding 22 kids. Hi. We can go through more than five dozen eggs for a breakfast. Wash your hands with soap. We easily go through probably three loaves of bread in a day. And laundry? I'm sure that's just 24-7. Oh, yeah. Constantly going. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Susie and Christine also live in plural marriages. The basic thing that we have different from FLDS is that we choose who we marry. We choose when we marry. We don't believe in underage marriages either at all. And what is underage? 18. Anyone under, under 18? 18. And for my own children, can they be a little bit older? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> 25. Really? That'd be great. Absolutely. I'd love my girls to go to college first, get a degree, work on their own for a while, go live in an apartment, travel the world. The practice of polygamy is a deeply held spiritual belief for them. It's just the way that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob lived in the Bible. Ready, Kai? But they say they'd be okay if their children decided to forgo it. It's not as if 
everyone is forcing their kids even into living this lifestyle. They are allowed the freedom to move freely however they're, wherever their life takes them. Vicki and Valerie call themselves independent fundamentalists. We associate with each other and we know each other, but we don't go to the same church or have a leader like a Warren Jeffs persona that we follow. The family worships at home and tries its best to live under the radar. They would not share their last names, and their husband refused to be interviewed, fearing it would jeopardize his business. Ours won't go on camera because there is a stigma associated with it. But the raid in Texas has changed things for them. They believe the allegations of abuse against the FLDS are greatly exaggerated, and it's frightened them. And I feel compelled to stand up. If it can happen to them in their community, what is to stop it from happening to me in my home. If I take my child to the doctor with a broken bone, I don't want to have the fear that they are going to just automatically assume that it's abuse because why? Because you're a polygamist. And I have that fear. Their children live with that fear as well. In the predominantly Mormon community, they're frequently taunted as polygamists. People would shorten it and just say plague in a really derogatory way. Do they come home in tears sometimes? They have. I've, my daughter has had rocks thrown at her, and she was very upset, yes. There's a lot they say we just don't understand. Yeah, the men get a bad rap. I've heard it said that it's all about sex and control for the men, and really they work so hard to provide for their families. They're particularly offended by the stereotype that women in polygamy are oppressed. I don't think a man who lives this way just has all power over everyone in his family to yeah. do as he pleases. He might like it, but he <laughs> They want to bring the practice of polygamy out of the shadows in the hope that one day it may be decriminalized. So they're even willing to answer uncomfortable questions. How does sharing your husband with other women enhance your spiritual lives? We learn a lot of things about ourselves, and we learn how to, um, we learn about our emotions. That's one thing that a lot of people have had a hard time with understanding. Well, how can you do this? Don't you get jealous? And to me, it's like, yeah, you do. But it's also something that going into it, we knew would happen. We knew we were going to, to share this relationship. Your husband is in another bedroom being intimate with one of his other wives. And how do you just let that go? Sometimes I do get selfish, and I have cried, and I have yelled maybe a little bit, just a little bit. And <laughs> it, it can get to be a challenge. I mean, it's just, it's, it's life, but it's real. We're real people, and we have real emotions. You just work through them. Vicki and Valerie say living this way has brought them closer to God and each other. You guys go take a seat. In a family so large, they say, their children are never lonely, and neither are they. There's so much rich family values and so many experiences that you have that, that you wouldn't experience somewhere else because you really have to work together and the people that you in your life that you have relationships with, are, those are the people that help you grow. Can you see living your life any other way? I can't hardly imagine it. <laughs>
um, that Mitt Romney is going to, in according to his religion, in the afterlife, he's going to call his wife into heaven by her secret name that only he knows. And he'll do that if he has considered her to be a good wife. So her salvation depends on whether or not he calls her into heaven by her secret name. So uh, the idea here, if you're a polygamist, if you're going to call all of your wives or some of your wives, you're going to have a choice there. You know, they also believe that when Jesus was um, on earth that he had three wives, that polygamy is just part of, just like uh, the woman said in the interview, that um, this is the way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived. You know, uh Jacob was told by his mother to go to um, her brother Laban and take one of uh, her, his daughters for, for a wife. And Jacob ended up marrying um, two of the daughters. Well, they say that because it was done in the Old Testament, that it was done with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they had these multiple wives and handmaidens, um, that, that that's what makes it okay. But you have to dismiss, like so many other replacement theologies or false religions, you have to replace uh, um, biblical teaching that follows that um, in order to come up with this conclusion. Um, and, and this this uh, temple endowment ceremony is, is really uh, one of these things where you not only get the password, you'll get your wife's secret name that you'll call her by. Um, and you'll get the secret handshake, but it comes with a, a lot of other requirements. Now, we don't have time to go into virtually all of this stuff. I've already uh, blithered so much about this stuff that I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this one program. And tomorrow's program we're doing for you folks in the U.K. For, so for everybody in Britain, tune in tomorrow at 2 p.m. because we're going to talk about what's going on over there with this new age movement, with the leaders, your, two, your court systems. But I don't want to get off on that too much. I just wanted to give you this reminder. What I want to do, since we talked about polygamy, is talk about the Masonic roots of Mormonism. Um, a lot of Mormons don't even realize that their temple endowment ceremony was copied directly from uh, from the occult rites in Masonry. You know, the Mormon temple ceremony has no connection whatsoever with Christianity. You know, Joseph Smith became uh, an entered apprentice Mason. And the next day, he became a master mason. You know, the 30-day wait between degrees was waived um, by the Grand Master uh, in the Illinois Lodge for Joseph Smith. He admitted to being a mason in the history of the church. The book, The History of the Church, Volume 4, page 551, he admitted to being a Freemason. Now, under the date of uh, March 15, 1842, his entry... Um, into this book, he said, in the evening, I received the first degree of Freemasonry in the uh, Nauvoo Lodge, assembled in my general business office. This is this is in the uh, History of the Church, Volume 4. The very next day, he noted becoming a Master Mason. I was in the Masonic Lodge and rose to the sublime degree. Sublime is the highest degree, one of the highest degrees. Dr. Reed Durham, who was president of the Mason History Association, said that there is absolutely no question in my mind 
that the Mormon ceremony, which came to be known as the endowment introduced by Joseph Smith to Mormon Masons, had an intermediate inspiration from Masonry. It's also obvious that the Navarro Temple um, architecture was in part, at least, Messianic influenced. It appears that there was intentional attempt to utilize Masonic uh, symbols and um, you can just look at them and see that that there's there's no doubt where it came from. That it didn't come from God; it came from Freemasonry. Less than two months after being a, becoming a Master Mason, Joseph Smith introduced the endowment ceremony. Two months. He occupied uh, Masonic rites from a book called Freemasonry Exposed in 1827 by William Morgan. And when you compare the Navarro ceremony with the Masonic rite in Morgan's book, you can easily see the influence in the Mormon ritual. The two rites resemble each other to the point of being identical at places. You know, Morgan's account was an expose of his local um, uh, rites or crafts degree in Freemasonry. You can easily see the similarities between Masonic and Mormon rites. You know, the, the, remember when we talked about the penalties for re revealing the first token of the Aaronic priesthood? Well, Smith copied from the penalty of disclosing the first degree of Freemasonry. You know, Mormon text says, we and each of us, this is what it says in the Book of Mormon. In Temple Mormonism, page 18, here's what it says. We and each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets of this, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, when it's accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our throats, you know, we're going through that, our throats be cut from ear to ear and our tongues torn out by the roots. Well, that's from Freemasonry. The Mason's text says, I will... I will never reveal any part or parts, arts or arts, points or points of secret arts and mysteries of ancient Freemasonry, binding myself under no less penalty to have my throat cut across my tongue torn out by the roots. This is by William Morgan, Freemasonry, um, uh, 1827, page 21 and 22. It's the exact same wording. So how can they claim that this is something from God when in the early 1800s, which was the creation of Mormonism, is the same time that he became a Freemason, um, that he started the Mormon church and took word for word and put it into Mormon doctrine and say it was from God. Does that mean that Freemasonry is from God? The Mormon text says this. Um, on Padden, page 20, says, We and each of us do covenant and promise that we will not reveal the secrets of this, the second token of the Aaronic priesthood, with its accompanying name, sign, grip, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree to have our breast coat open and our hearts and vitals torn from our bodies and given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, just like we read before. Well, the Mason text says this, I most solemnly and secretly promise and swear that I will not give the degree of a fellow craft mason to any one of the inferior degrees, nor to any other 
being in the known world, binding myself under no less penalty than to have my left breast torn open and my heart and vitals taken from thee to become a prey to the wild beast of the field and vultures of the air. It's the same words. But yet, Mormons took these same words from Freemasonry in the creation of Mormonism and put it into doctrine and said, this is the word of God. And it came as a revelation to Joseph Smith from God. So he says, but it's the exact same words of Freemasonry. Hmm. How does this work? You know, Freemasonry uses names and trappings from the Bible. Freemasonry is a, is a occult organization. A lot of books have, have traced the occult roots of Masonry. Masonry forces its members to address all prayers to the great architect of the universe. Masons have been forced out of the organization if they pray to Jesus Christ. They are forced out. In the Masonic initiation, the, the um, initiate bares his left breast and rolls up his left pant leg over the knee. His right shoe is placed by a slipper and his eyes are blindfolded. A noose is placed around his neck and he is led to the outer door of the Masonic temple. The blindfold symbolizes his being in outer darkness outside of Freemasonry. A sharp point is pricked at his breast, and he's made to kneel before the altar, behind which stands the worshipful master who presides over the ceremony. <laughs> yeah. He's then required to say that he is lost in darkness and is seeking the light of Freemasonry. A Christian can't say that they're lost in darkness, since a Christian, by definition, in 1 John, says, walk in the light of the Messiah. He would be lying if he took this oath. You know, it's a blue lodge ceremony. The initiate is giving a white lambskin apron, and as an emblem of spotless and pure life, to bring, therefore, the great white throne, which he uh, which he dies... Um, which he dyes white as part of a craft ritual. And there's only one great white throne in the Bible. That's in Revelation 20. And it's only those who are eternal, eternally damned who appear before it. Now, it's the judgment of the lost the, in Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 through 15. The white throne judgment is the judgment of the lost. The only covering of sin will be uh, accepted is uh, is. Christ's atoning blood. That's the only thing that will be accepted. Anybody that goes to the white throne judgment is being judged. It's going to hell. You know, to God, good deeds are alone, are filthy rags to him. You cannot earn your way into heaven. And you see that in Colossians, Ephesians, Hebrews, John, Matthew, Isaiah, Revelation. It's all over the place. Works are of filthy rags to God. Dr. Albert Pike was a Masonic authority who wrote Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Right. He was the sovereign grand commander of the Southern Supreme Council for 32 years. The current sovereign grand commander 
uh, noted that Pike's great book on morals and dogma is the most com uh, complete exposition of Masonic philosophy that there is. And it's the exact same as the wording in Mormonism. The Masonic de definition of God is a polytheistic. It, it's not compatible with the Bible. Neither is the Masonic plan of salvation, which is works and moralism and Masonic ritual. It is not compatible with this narrow Christian path to salvation, confessing sin in, in 1 John 1 through 9, repenting from sin in Mark, having faith in Christ in John 3, or being born again of the Spirit in John, uh, uh, John 3, 3 through 8, or reading the Bible in earnest in 2 Timothy. John 14 says that Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man come to the Father except by me. So how can this book that they come out with saying that you have to do certain things and go through rites and rituals in order to get into heaven, <laughs> teach it as a companion to the Bible and say this is of God when it contradicts the Bible itself? And they put the Book of Mormon before the Bible. It comes before the Bible. Now, they say they use it as a companion, but they're picking up the Book of Mormon first and because they're, they're, that's their name. Latter-day Saints, they're saying that everything that's in the Book of Mormon came after everything in the Bible. Therefore, it is more truth than the Bible. And that if anything is contradictory, then it's the past stuff that's wrong because they have new revelation. So what do you, what do you say, folks? Are we dealing with Christians here or a cult? Scripture says there's only one true God. God commands us to have no other gods before him. Masonry, by definition, bows to all God and refuses to acknowledge the, the God of the Bible as Lord. Now, after entering the, the three Blue Lodge degrees and having completed the, the York Rite degrees, and, and Masons can um, petition to become Shriners. Yeah, Shriners, who swear to a blood oath uh, and who confess Allah as God. Allah. Allah is not just another name for God. Allah is the name of another God. It's not just a, another name for God. It's another God. Joseph Smith copied the Mormon endowment ceremony directly from the Blue Lodge degrees of Freemasonry. He borrowed Masonic, or stole Masonic symbolism, such as the markings on the underwear that Mormons wear. Those are Masonic markings. Over the right breast in the occult Mormon underwear is a carpenter's signature or a square. Over the left is a Mason's compass. Look on the uh, symbols on the Mormon underwear that they're required to wear all of the time except for bathing um, and changing them. That's what you're going to see. You're going to see Freemasonry compass and the Carpenter's Square right there as part of these uh, rituals that they say are from God, which are in fact from Freemasonry. The opening in this underwear at the navel is symbolic of the uh, penalty of disclosing Mormon secrets. So in this underwear, in the T-shirt, in this one-piece or two-piece 
underwear, there's an opening at the navel. That's symbolic of what's going to happen to you if you disclose these secrets. They're going to open you up in the belly and let your uh, innards gush out. Mormons are taught that their underwear, and in particular the Masonic markings, will be a shield and protection to them for the power of the destroyer. When the underwear becomes worn, worn out, Mormons can use the undergarment as, say, a rag only if they cut out and burn the patches and the Masonic square and compass. The occult power is the Masonic symbolism. So once once these garments are worn out, you can't use them for anything else unless you cut out and burn the symbols of the Masonic square and the compass. And this whole thing is also dictated right into their buildings, both the temple and the places where they hold worship. You see these same Masonic symbols that they claim are from God, but are an exact duplicate of Freemasonry. Now, before we go any further, I want to play you another clip about Mitt Romney and what he believes and his politics. This is an interview. Please listen to this. What what does Mitt Romney say? Come on, play, baby. There we go. You're a bit older now. You're a bit wiser. Um, you know, when I study you as a potential candidate, you take all the boxes. Eh? Harvard MBA, very hardworking, very rich, decent guy, uh, religiously devout, you know, smart business guy. If I was a voter, you're there. You know, there's, there's no problem with you. I mean, you know, you don't you don't drink, you don't never taken drugs, you don't smoke. You're a family man. I mean, you're pretty perfect, aren't you? Uh, well, I think people would, uh, particularly my family, would disagree with that conclusion. <laughs> I want to play you a clip now, and it relates to your Mormon faith. And I want you to, to watch this, and then we'll discuss it afterwards. Sure. I believe in my Mormon faith, and I endeavor to live by it. My faith is the faith of my fathers. I will be true to them and to my beliefs. Some believe that such a confession of my faith will sink my candidacy. If they're right, so be it. Do you still stand by every word of that? Absolutely. Do you think it's going to be a potential problem if you run your, your faith? Once again, I, I can't judge the politics. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. My, my experience so far, both in Massachusetts, running as a Mormon guy in a state that's overwhelmingly of other faiths, uh, didn't seem to get in my way there. But most people in this country recognize that, in fact, the nation itself was founded on the principle of religious tolerance and freedom. We respect other people's beliefs and... Uh, and I think in a lot of cases, respect people who honor their faith. And All right. So let's take it for what he said. If we call virtually anything a religion, should we be able to practice that religion uh, under religious tolerance, no matter how bizarre, strange, violent, um, or corrosive this quote-unquote religion, religion might be? What if I say that my religion is um, capturing my neighbor's cats and cooking them on an open fire and that I should be able to do this because this is part of my religion? Well, when you talk about Mormonism and, and you talk about uh, polygamy and um, all of the 
rites and rituals and everything that goes with that, the idea that they're going to be a god of their own planet, that they're going to create their own spiritual population in the afterlife with their wife, um, that he's going to become a god. Do we want a president that's going to become a god? Now, when I did the program about the racism, I read directly from the Book of Mormon, and it's not just scattered here and there. This racism is not just scattered here and there. It says all through in the Book of Mormon, uh, inside the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Alma, talks about it extensively over and over, about how people whose dark skin are cursed, that this curse comes because they are of Satan. And anybody who is evil, who is cursed, has had their skin darkened. And if they are able to, through their good works, get out from underneath this curse, their skin will be lightened. So tell me, anybody, anywhere, through history, Michael Jackson excluded, has gone from black to white, or from white to black, from white to Mexican, or dark brown, uh, Asian or anything else has anybody anywhere ever switched their skin color by their works tell me anyone anywhere who has accomplished that I don't know what the deal was with Michael Jackson don't even bring that up but it certainly wasn't by his works. It was either by a skin condition or by bleaching, whatever happened there. It wasn't by his works through God that his skin was lightened. But according to Mormonism, your skin can be lightened with the proper good works. You can shed this curse of having dark skin. It says that you are cursed if you mix your seed with somebody who is dark-skinned because these dark-skinned people are cursed. And you just heard... Mitt Romney say how dedicated he is, and his dedication is not just in words. He has proved it by becoming a stake president over 12 different wards. You don't reach that high in the church without having an absolute devout faith in what you believe. You know, I've been talking about this for an hour and 45 minutes, and I could go on for another two hours and still be scratching the surface of this. I would like to encourage everyone to dig into this yourself and just start reading some of the bizarre things about this, whether or not it's a cult. In fact, let's take a look at that. With the little time we have left, I want to I bring up some points, and you decide for yourself if, if you think that this is a, a religion or if this is a cult. Because this is not only a cult, but it's a financial cult. This is a financial cash cow. And I'm not kidding. These people these people rake in so much money, it is not even funny. Is that a motivation for part of this? Is it part of the motivation in Freemasonry or the Mormon religion that is partially copied from Freemasonry with the rituals and the secrets and the um, uh, everything that goes with that? On top of that being an absolute cash cow requiring only the 10% from their parishioners, but the, they have to uh, buy all of these uh, things from the Church of Latter-day Saints. Well, 
Let's take a look at this real quick, and I'm going to ask you some uh, questions, and you decide for yourself in your own mind after just a few things we have talked about. Listen to this. Now, the Mormon Church collects at least $6 billion, with a B, $6 billion a year from its members. It generates at least another $5 billion in sales from its business enterprises. Total church assets exceed $30 billion. At least 100 companies are controlled by the Mormon Church. Some estimate its total annual revenues to exceed $20 billion. The church also owns 18 radio stations in the U.S. Part of the church's income comes to or goes to operate an elaborate internal welfare system because Mormons have their own welfare system. So those of you on the government dole, you may want to look into this so its members can avoid governmental assistance. It also provides uh, – has a 58,000-plus missionary workforce uh, in more than 160 countries – in 102 languages. The church's Provo in Utah, uh, in Provo, Utah, has 26-acre training center. It receives 500 new missionaries each week into its three- to nine-week intensive training program. All boys, once they turn 19, are expected to dedicate two years of their lives to being a missionary. Finding or I mean fielding missionaries, is a $500 million per year effort. And it reaps more than 300,000 new converts each year. Only about 46% of Mormons attend church meetings at least once a month. And this clean-cut image that Mormons have um, is part of the factor of the Mormon church uh, that turns people away, outsiders away. It's forbidden to drink coffee, tea, or alcohol, or tobacco products. Yeah, and I want to play you a little clip here about this training center because this is crucial. Listen to this clip. MTC, the Missionary Training Center of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This year, it marks a 50th anniversary. Whether you've never been inside or have been inside even a few years ago, things have changed. Carol Makita has an unprecedented look behind the scenes and takes us along. Danny and Bruce, the idea of how to train young men and women and senior couples to do missionary work has changed in the 21st century. Everything from learning languages to staying fit. But it begins with leaving family and friends, and that's always emotional. This is the hard part. Every Wednesday, families and friends say farewell to young Latter-day Saint men and women, volunteering 18 months to two years to preach, teach, and serve somewhere in the world. It's very exciting, but it's hard. But it's mostly exciting, I have to admit, it's mostly exciting. Missionaries greet the three to 400 new arrivals. 100 cars unload every 15 minutes. 20,000 new missionaries pass through these doors every year. For 50 years, they have come here to learn how to teach the basic principles of their faith. Before I got my call, you know, I never knew they sent missionaries to Madagascar, and suddenly everybody, everybody knew somebody that's been there. First, photos for ID badges, then seam rippers to open the pockets of new suits, a place for those internationally recognized name tags. Next, the host missionary takes the new missionary to his or her room. Two bunk beds, four to a room. 
After a quick look around, then an important meeting. The Companion. They are together anywhere from 3 to 12 weeks in preparation for working in pairs in their assigned countries. Jesus Christos делал то, что отец заповедовал им. 52 languages are taught here. They spend nine hours a day in classes. Most of the instructors are former missionaries, and for in-depth study, there is the language lab. The dining hall. In two-hour blocks, three times a day, 500 hungry young people arrive every half hour, and it's all you can eat. Last year, they consumed more than 200,000 apples, more than 163,000 pounds of bananas, more than 25,000 gallons of 2% milk, with chocolate milk close behind at more than 22,000. And they ate more cereal than anyone cares to count or weigh. In order to burn off some of those calories, the young missionaries have an opportunity to come here to one of the busiest gyms in America. They exercise 60 minutes a day. Last year, instructors logged half a million missionary hours. They even have early morning options. All right, I'm going to cut that short because we get the general idea of how many people are coming into these missionary training camps on a regular basis. These are people who are coming to the LDS church in record number. Now, I want before we run out of time here, I want to go over some of the basics of what they're teaching them um, in these training camps. And this is important, and we're going to go over these one by one. Let's start with the source of authority. Their source of authority that they're teaching to these new missionaries as they come in and start the relationship in the new Mormon church. It teaches that the canon of scripture was not closed when the Bible was completed. They have three sources in addition to the Bible, all of which they believe contain God's revelations. That's the Book of Mormon, which has changed more than 4,000 places uh, in the Bible. Doctrine and Covenants and the pearl of great price. However, Mormons follow the teachings of these three books even when they contradict the Bible. For instance, Mormonism teaches that the Bible is the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Now, this is a replacement theology where people change the translations and uh, the meanings of it just like any other replacement theology. When it, wherever a Mormon believes uh, contradicts scripture, the Mormons say the particular part of the scripture is translated incorrectly. And that the correct translation is one of the Mormon scriptures. How many different replacement theologies say that? Say that it is just not interpreted or translated correctly. Here is the correct translation or interpretation. That's a replacement theology. The, uh, what about the Trinity? Mormonism teaches polytheism, believing that the universe is inhabited by many gods who produce spirit children. Joseph Smith said, I will preach on the plurality of gods. I have always declared God to be a direct personage, Jesus Christ, a separate and distinct personage from God the Father and the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and and a spirit, and that these three constitute three distinct persons and three gods, teaching all of the uh, coming from the prophet Joseph Smith. They believe that this is three different persons. Now, I was in a in a chat room once, not on 
blog talk or anything like that, but in a religious chat room, and I was talking to Muslims, and I had a Muslim, a young man, who uh, um, messaged me in private, and he said he was doing a paper for his class. He was in the Middle East, and that he had some basic questions. He wasn't questioning my faith. He just had basic questions that he wanted to ask a Christian. He chose to ask me. One of these questions was, why do you worship three gods, and who are these three gods? And I said that I'm a Christian. Why, why are you asking me that? We don't worship three gods. He said, well, we are taught that Christians worship three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are three separate people. And I had to explain to him um, more than once before he understood that all three of these are just different aspects of the one true God. But at the end of this, I had to make it clear that there was only one true God. Mormonism is is claiming to be Christian, yet is pushing uh, an idea and a doctrine that is not Christian. And it's giving everyone around the world the wrong idea about Christianity. And they teach in the Middle East that we worship three gods. Is that coming from Mormonism? Mormons claim to be Christian, and they claim to worship three gods. So people around the world will read Mormon doctrine who claim to be Christian. They'll say, see, right here. Here it is right here. Christians worship three different gods. No, we don't because Mormons are not Christian. Even if they say it, it doesn't matter because their deeds say different. All right, we're out of time. I've got like three minutes left. Now listen, tomorrow, and I wanted to cover so much more, not only Trinity, but how they feel about God and the Holy Spirit, um, sin, salvation, heaven and hell, the temple rituals, all of these things I haven't had a chance to cover. I should probably do another program on this and continue telling you about all of these bizarre things that are so not of Christianity. But I'm just out of time again. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't complete this. And tomorrow I've already promised to do this program on um, what's going on in Britain um, throughout all of the UK. So make sure you tune in for that. I'm going to not only uh, um, expose some of the things that are going on over there with this New Age movement, but it's going to be proof that this is global, that this is not just in America. This is a global thing. So until tomorrow uh, at 2 p.m., Please join me then, my friends, because uh, this is going to be a very important program. Thank you for allowing me. Come to my webpage, wdeanshook.com. You can email me at contact at wdeanshook.com. I'll see you tomorrow for our show on the UK. Thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate God bless every one of you. I'll see you tomorrow.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.